Tonight, God's Word comes to us from Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, we're going to begin our reading at verse 14 and then read through verse 41 of this chapter. Acts 2, beginning at verse 14. What we hear now is God's Word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades <clears throat> or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
For all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, last time in our study of Acts uh, chapter 2, we looked somewhat at the event of Pentecost, and we saw that that Pentecost event was uh, uh, really nothing new. It was the spirit of the Old Testament now manifesting itself in the New Testament. Uh, there are many things in the book of Acts we can learn about the New Testament church, wonderful things for us to learn. Uh, also, by looking at the, new, new, at the new book of Acts, we can learn about New Testament preaching. There are some wonderful sermons given to us in the book of Acts. Now, probably the greatest sermon ever preached uh, would be Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he properly applies the law of God to what was going on at their time. But I have to say a close second to that sermon would be Peter's Sermon on Pentecost. They had seen the signs, they had, they had heard the sounds, but they didn't understand. They didn't know what was going on. Perhaps these men are drunk, they say. And Peter will get up, and he will address them about what was going on and about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. Tonight, we're going to look at this sermon. Children, I'm going to preach a sermon about sermons. I'm going to preach about preaching. Now, you might say, well, Reverend Nehemiah, that, that really probably belongs more in uh, a seminary classroom, because certainly uh, young men who aspire to the ministry have to be taught how to preach, and that's true. We have to have a well-educated clergy that has to be taught how to preach. But while ministers have to be taught how to preach, it is also true. Congregations need to be taught how to listen. What do we listen for? What is it that makes a good sermon? Now, I, I'm not talking uh, so much about the delivery of the sermon. Uh, there has been heresy delivered with great eloquence. Uh, there has also been truth delivered from halting lips. We're not talking about the delivery of the sermon tonight, uh, but the content of the sermon. What do we listen for? 
What is the type of preaching that brings people to faith and repentance? What is preaching that converts? Um, When I'm not preaching uh, and we go to church elsewhere at times or we're traveling and go to church elsewhere, um, sometimes it'll be the case uh, that I uh, walk out of, of the worship service And uh, someone will greet me and they'll say, wasn't that a fantastic sermon? And I'll kind of bite my tongue and uh, say in my head, no, no, it was not. That was a terrible sermon. There was no mention of sin. There was no mention of God's grace. The gospel was absent. Um, We cannot assume (laughs) we know what to listen for. What, what, What is... What is preaching that that arrests the heart and the mind? What is preaching that converts us? If the gospel is not there, it's not even worthy to be called preaching. So tonight we're going to look at this this New Testament sermon and talk about preaching that converts. And I would say, first of all, preaching that converts explains what is going on around those who are hearing it. They heard, they saw the Pentecost events, verse 12, and they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others mock, saying they are filled with new wine. And Peter uses this as his point of entry. What does this mean? We see things going on around us, but we do not understand what is happening. And Peter begins by by correcting their misunderstanding. Verse 15. But these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So he begins by correcting them. You think this is happening? That is not what's going on. He begins by correcting their misunderstanding and putting these events in their proper context, in their proper biblical context. He will go on to apply the scriptures to what they have just seen. Verse 16, but, but, he says, it's not that, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what just happened. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants, my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. He explains to them from the scriptures what is actually going on. This is what you're seeing. That which was prophesied is happening right now. He applies the Word of God to the contemporary situation. And that still has to be the case today. The Word of God must be applied to the contemporary situation we find ourselves in. We, and if I can put it kind of crassly this way, we need more than good doctrine. Now, we have to have good doctrine, but we need more than good doctrine. We need doctrine applied to our lives. Doctrine that makes a difference. Doctrine that corrects the errors that we see around us. And there are many errors around us. 
that have to be corrected. The world so often misunderstands, mischaracterizes what is going on. They are blind to the truth and have to be instructed. Tonight we took an offering for Ashur and we, we think of the work that they do and we think of, of the tragedy of abortion. The world calls the killing of innocent children pro-choice. That is their description. This is a choice. That has to be corrected. It's not, a, it's not a choice. It is a murder of an innocent. And the, the, the gospel, the word has to speak to that. Correct the world's misunderstanding. The world sees relationships between two men or two women that are an offense to God and describes these relationships with the word gay. Gay means happy children. It is not. It's an abomination before God. The world needs correcting. They just simply cannot perceive properly what is going on around them. And the Word of God has to speak to that. It must be applied to that. It has to shine a light on our current situation. And so we have to speak with biblical language, biblical categories. Uh, now we hear about uh, uh, dysfunctional families. We hear about codependent situations. Um, what's the Bible's word for this, kids? The Bible's word is simply sin. And you say, well, that's, that's just you know, far too simplistic. We know so much more now. Well, it may be simplistic. But the scriptures don't say that Jesus came for codependence or that he came for those with dysfunctions. He came for sinners, sinners to save. And we have to speak in these biblical categories. It's simplistic, but it's accurate. It's what's really going on. The Word of God must be pointedly applied to the local situation. And, and uh, I would say for, for ministers, for uh, parishioners, uh, that's the hardest part of the sermon. As long as we're talking about doctrine and the sermon stays at 10,000 feet and we can talk about these wonderful truths, it never really touches us. Parishioners... <laughs> don't necessarily like it when the Word of God is pointedly applied. I want to assure you, ministers don't like it either. We don't like having to point out these difficult situations we find ourselves in, but we are called to declare the full counsel of God and apply that to where we sit in our lives today. As uh, the story goes, uh, one minister had particularly applied a sermon to his congregation, and on the way out, one of his parishioners said to him, Pastor, uh, you weren't preaching, now you're meddling. And it might feel that way sometimes, that the pastor is meddling, but he's called to pointedly apply the Word of God, preaching that converts. Preaching that converts displays the glory of God, particularly in Jesus Christ. 
Preaching that converts reminds us that God is in control of all things. Again, the world gets this wrong. The world will say, look, if there's a God, if he's in control, how can this particular thing happen? How could there be this uh, a motorcycle wreck? How could this child die? How could, how could my father be taken away from me? All these things they come up with. But God's in control. And preaching that converts speaks of God's sovereignty, of his power, even in apparent evil circumstances. And Peter takes them there. Verse 22, men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This greatest crime against humanity, Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, was done with God's foreknowledge more than his foreknowledge, according to his definite plan. God is in control of all things. Even when it seems like these things are terrible, God is working his purposes out. And the crucifixion is demonstration, is evidence of that. There may be times where our lives seem to be out of control, but God is never out of control. God is the one who continues to bring everything to his appointed end. Preaching that converts displays the glory of God, particularly in the work of Jesus Christ. His life and death and resurrection. In these few verses, Peter here gives us the heart of the gospel. The life, death, Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Once again, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, you yourselves know, his life. This Jesus delivered up, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, his death. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The resurrection. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the heart. This is the core of the gospel. It is a very simple message. Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. He died a death to pay for the sins of his people, and God raised him again from the dead. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't need to go to seminary to learn that. Preaching that converts is simple. It points us again and again to Jesus Christ. Preaching that converts takes us to the foot of the cross and highlights what God did there and in the resurrection on that Easter Sunday morning. And that's what Peter does. He says, verse 25, For David says concerning him, now quoting Psalm 16, which we read earlier, 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. David speaking, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Peter quotes David's words that he would not be abandoned to Hades. He would not see decay. And then he goes on, and I, 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 you know, I almost picture him preaching with a wry smile on his face at this point. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb was with us to this day. He says David wasn't ultimately talking about himself. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. David spoke about Christ and his resurrection. Preaching that converts points us to Jesus Christ. That is the, the one message of salvation that weaves itself throughout Scripture. It is found in the New Testament. It is found in the Old Testament. This song applied to Jesus, not being left to see decay. Death could not hold him. In a, in a certain sense, if you're going to share the gospel with someone, it does not matter where you begin. Sometimes the New Testament's easier, but it does not speak more of Christ than the Old Testament. It perhaps speaks clearer of Christ, but both, old and new, declare the gospel, Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We need to learn to see the gospel in Old Testament stories. We need to learn to see beyond simply the surface layer, where is this text pointing us? We think of, of uh, uh, back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell into sin. They were told there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That text did not apply only to Eve's sons, her direct seed. But that text points us forward to her eventual seed, Jesus Christ, and his enmity against Satan himself. We need to see where the text points us. Certainly it is true in what it says. It is absolutely history, but it also reaches beyond. It brings us to Christ. When we see the story of um, Abraham offering his son Isaac up on the altar, his beloved son, we're told, the son that he loved. And God told him to take that son that he loved and offer him up on an altar. Yet at the end, God restrains his hand. The point of that story is not, what is it that you love God is asking you to sacrifice? That is not the point of that story. That story reaches beyond itself to God's own son, 
who would be placed on the altar. And yet God, for the sake of each and every one of His own, would not restrain His hand. But Jesus Christ would become that substitute sacrifice for all of His people. The story points us to Christ. We need to, we need to get beyond simply moralistic understanding. Of course, the classic example of that, and I've heard this sermon, perhaps you've heard this sermon, the story of David and Goliath, the little boy David who defeats the giant Goliath, and we hear that story and it's told with relish, and in the end we're asked, what are the Goliaths in your life God wants you to conquer? That is not the point of David and Goliath. It's not about the Goliaths in our life that with God's help we can overcome. It is about God's anointed battling the enemy of God's people. It is a story that points us past the event to the work of Jesus Christ and his final victory over Satan, his life, his death, his resurrection. Scripture does not give us moral examples. It gives us the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel which saves. That's, that's, that's preaching that converts. It displays the glory of God in Christ. And then finally, preaching that converts calls the hearers to repentance and faith. Peter said, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what shall we do? At that Pentecost event and that sermon, they did not leave feeling good about themselves. They did not leave being told, you know, you're doing pretty well and God can help you do a little bit better. But that's what we hear sometimes from the pulpit today. No, they heard that Jesus Christ was crucified by their own sin, by their own actions, and they are cut to the heart. They recognize the depth of what has been done and they call out, what can we do? How can we be saved? Peter gives these wonderful words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. That's the call of the gospel. Repent. Change. Leave your old ways. Leave your trust in yourself and place your trust only, wholly, completely in Jesus Christ, this one who has lived and died and been resurrected once again. Put your faith in Him. Repent. Change your old ways and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For the believer, the same call. Don't remain in your sin. Don't remain in your fallen ways. Turn away. Obey God. Obey His law. Preaching is called to change our lives. They, they, he continued to call, he says verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He continued to call to them and exhort them, don't go back to the way you were. 
but embrace this, this, this one Lord and Savior, his life, his death, his resurrection. Repentance is, is an ongoing lifestyle. It is not a one-time decision. We do not, at the end of our service, uh, ask people to come forward and sit in the front bench and make a, a one-time decision for Christ. That's sometimes how repentance is characterized. Repentance is an ongoing daily thing. We've talked about that in our morning worship services. A life devoted to God and devoted to His ways. And this, this call of the gospel is so beautiful. For Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for you. If you are being called by God tonight, don't reject, don't turn away, don't, don't, don't stop that glorious work, but embrace what God is doing in you. Don't throw up uh, challenges, but humble yourself before God. Recognize Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection and know the hope, the assurance of salvation. Be converted in your life as God works in you, as His Spirit gives you that gift of faith whereby you might embrace Jesus Christ. Preaching that converts is preaching that, that highlights His work, His life, His death, His resurrection. And, and what happens at the end of this sermon, verse 41? And... So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. There is power in the gospel. There is power in the declaration of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no power in the words of men. Words of men cannot change a heart, cannot convert. But the power of God, does exactly that. It is that type of preaching we must expect from the pulpit. It is that type of preaching we must demand from the pulpit. For it is through that type of preaching, preaching that is applied, that addresses the current situation, even if it's uncomfortable, preaching that highlights God's glory, His sovereignty, and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, it is that type of preaching that God will use to call each and every one of his own, all who are far off, to him, that they might know the glory of salvation. That's the preaching we have to pray for, the preaching we have to expect, and by God's grace, the preaching he will give to us. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we thank you for this beautiful text, a text that that shows us how your word has been preached in the past and, <clears throat> and how you used that word to bring glory to yourself. We recognize, O oh God, uh, elsewhere in Scripture there is the description of preaching as foolishness, and certainly to man it is foolishness. But with you it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And so we pray most earnestly that that your word might never be silent from our own pulpit or from other pulpits in all faithful churches, that as simple as it might seem, the gospel would continue to be declared Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and that you yourself, O oh God, would use that ministry of the gospel, would use that preaching 
to convert and to save each and every one of your own. Lord God, hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.